Welcome back to Streamageddon, the TV and streaming podcast that breaks the fourth wall every episode to talk to you, dear listeners. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the internet by female lawyer of the year, Diane Nora. Oh, why, thank you, Chris. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Congratulations on the honor. They did give it to several. In fact, it looked like all the female lawyers in the cast. So I thought that was a a good visual gag. Uh, But I assume that means you were honored as well. Congratulations. Oh, I was absolutely honored, both in human and superhero form. Oh, that's fantastic, because we are talking about a superhero show today. We're going to do, by great demand, a new Rewind review where we revisit a show we already talked about, but now we've seen the complete season. So this is going to be a spoiler-packed She-Hulk attorney at law extravaganza coming later in the episode. So if you're not ready for those spoilers, that's okay. We'll give you plenty of time to catch up. Uh, But that series just finished on Disney+, and we have some thoughts. Or at least I assume you have some thoughts. Otherwise, why would you have agreed to this? Oh, I've got them. Just Uh, you wait. uh, Beautiful. But you will have to wait because first we have some breaking news. Or about as breaking as you can get when we pre-record several days before you hear this, dear listener. But the news is finally here. The news you've been waiting for. The news about Netflix's ad-supported tier. Are you excited, Diane? I am. As a basic person, it's great to know that basic is in. Basic is back, baby. And this time, it's with ads. That's the name of the new Netflix ad-supported tier, Basic with ads, which, which sure, does what it says on the label. Honestly, I like that it makes sense, unlike, you know, Hulu Plus, which is plus nothing. Yep, or Peacock Plus, which doesn't, or Peacock Premium, Premium Plus? There's Peacock Premium, Peacock Premium Plus, but one of them has ads, one of them doesn't. I might be mixing up the words because none of them make sense, where this, I agree. Basic with ads sounds, well, pretty basic, and with ads. I like that. Now, how many ads will you have to watch if you are basic with ads? Uh, Four to five minutes of ads per hour. Uh, So that sounds pretty typical for streaming content. Uh, And they did say that there will be our beloved ad countdown. So uh, (laughs) you'll know if you have to wait 15 seconds, 30 seconds, uh, how much time you have before the shows come back. Truly, that is a gift. They've also said that uh, they will be a mix of pre-roll before a show or a movie and, you know, cut within. But for, uh, and this is a quote from Netflix COO Greg Peters, for new, whatever new movies means, uh, they will try, quote, to preserve that cinematic model there by doing only pre-roll ads for, again, new movies so your new movies aren't interrupted i assume that means enola holmes too you're good to go with pre-roll only but older movies they may just drop an ad break into the middle of the movie uh we'll see how they do with that i'd be curious to see how well those are integrated boy howdy i bet they aren't well integrated and that's probably what he's (laughs) hinting at because you look at some services that are ad supported they they often just algorithmically get the ad inserts wrong even for shows that originally had ad breaks i've watched uh mad men where every time they cut to commercial the commercial happens three seconds before the actual episode faded to black to cut to commercial in in tv times and that is like a thousand paper cuts that eventually makes you scream. Mm, especially on something that's so slick like Mad Men. Yeah. I could see that being especially infuriating. Um, yeah, uh, the other thing that really concerns me about that is that this has been uh, rushed a bit. They moved up the uh, timeline for when this will be rolling out. So yep. for most viewers, November 3rd will be the day that you can switch over to a Netflix with ads or start a new Netflix with ads subscription. So exciting. Everyone's marking their calendar. But I do think, I mean, my suspicion only, but my suspicion is that they moved this up 
to beat Disney Plus to the ad-supported mm-hmm. game, and it is a dollar cheaper than Disney Plus's ad-supported tier is going to be. So this is going to be six ninety nine a month, and Disney Plus with ads is going to be seven ninety nine a month, and is going to come like a month later. We don't have a date yet, but that's what we expect. So I just feel like, yeah, Netflix is like, no, we're going to do it first, man. If people are only going to do one of these, they're going to do us. If you like your Netflix subscription as you have it, you can still have a Netflix premium subscription. It'll be $19.99 a month, which feels like a lot. Yeah. Uh, there's also Netflix standard for $15.49 um, and, or and the basic version without ads. Just basic. Sorry. They just call that one basic. You could just be basic if you want to be. <laughs> I already am. Yeah, I got to say, basic with ads and basic, those two tiers make sense for the most part. Basic with ads has ads. Basic without ads, no ads. And basic without ads, you can also download to watch offline. And uh, there will be some shows and movies missing from basic with ads, though they've been super cagey about what. And it's not Netflix originals, as far as we understand. It's uh, all due to licensing agreements. Some shows they do not have the rights to show ads in. Uh, and possibly some movies, I might imagine. So uh, for the most part, basic with ads and basic without ads, very, very similar. Then when you get to standard and premium is where I think Netflix is really in in bigger trouble, big picture, because I don't know the difference between standard and premium without pulling up their uh, spreadsheet. They've got a spreadsheet for you, so you can figure that out. But as soon as you say that, you've done it wrong. And they don't use... Uh, real technical terms in this spreadsheet. And I'm like, if you have a spreadsheet, give me the stats, give me the specs. So instead of saying, you know, premium gets 4K, they say premium gets ultra HD and standard gets full HD and basic gets HD, but not full HD. What do those things mean? House dragons? <laughs> so, no, you know, wrong streamer. <laughs> I just I just wonder. I wonder if part of Netflix's bigger problem is that they've tried to diversify the tiers a bit too much and people are confused and now they're going to try to tack on additional subscriber fees, very likely so. We've talked about that in the past and part of them rolling out this ad plan is, well, we are going to get serious about suggesting that you stop freeloading and either pay an extra fee to stay on your parents' or boyfriend's subscription or go basic with ads right even if you are paying for that ad account on that basic with ads account you can only watch on one supported device at a time so you know for folks who've been sharing one netflix account with their whole family and your ex and your ex's roommate and their parakeet you might be in trouble that is correct and so we'll see. I, I agree with you that $20 a month for Netflix Premium, which does get you that ultra HD, does get you four simultaneous streams, does get you the option to download for up to four devices for offline viewing, uh, makes perfect sense for a family. Okay, but I think for me, a single person, that's insanely expensive, and I have a TV that could take advantage of the Ultra HD, but I'm not going to pay double the cost of Netflix Basic to get some extra pixels out of, I don't know, the Stranger Things Demogorgons? Yeah, the other thing for me, too, on the standard, which is still more than $15 a month. That 49 cents really gets me. That 49 cents. It should be $14.99. And somebody said, but by the number of people who subscribe to it, if we charge 50 cents more, we will make $100 million. Ugh, I hate that number crunch. I really would be more comfortable with $14.99. But still, that's only two supported devices at a time, which for like... Let's say, so I live with my partner. If we're both watching things on our laptops, that's max. You couldn't have something else on the TV. You know, I I don't know. I, I think that seems a little restrictive for that much money. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And what's funny is as you describe this, I go, do I, do I have premium? I'm on a, a Netflix with my family. I don't know what Netflix plan we have. Are we ever trying to watch at the same time? Because you might also realize, oh, I share it with these people, but I watch everything at 2 a.m. and they watch everything at 4 in the afternoon. And maybe that works out for you. I don't know. Uh, I think we're all, unfortunately, going to learn a lot more about our Netflix plans in the near future. I think you may be right. 
But you know, there is some good news for Netflix. They're coming into this hot because I have a, a fun little digression for a moment, a pop quiz, so to speak, for you, Diane. I think you're going to do well on this one because we do share the same show notes document. But let's try a fast pop quiz. Diane, if I asked you this question, what is the most popular show streaming right now? Would you guess that it is A, HBO's House of the Dragon, B, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, colon, The Rings of Power. Or would you guess that it is C, Cobra Kai? Cobra Kai. Oh, amazing work. Amazing work, Diane. Yes, the answer is C, Cobra Kai. In fact, for uh, the week that would be about a week and a half before you hear this episode, dear listener, Cobra Kai, according to Nielsen, which has to cobble together some very mutant streaming data because a lot of that stuff is proprietary, but Nielsen does it. They, they do it. And Nielsen says that Cobra Kai was streamed so much more than House of the Dragon or Lord of the Rings that if you combined the viewership of House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings for that week, you would just top Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai almost did more viewership than those two hot commodities combined. Interesting, too, because those shows are way more expensive than Cobra Kai. Uh-huh. And I'm sure someone at Netflix is going, yes, yes. Because as you may know, Cobra Kai was originally a YouTube Red series. And when YouTube's original programming imploded, as they all eventually do, uh, Netflix grabbed Cobra Kai. And it is now a, a true juggernaut. It's one of those Netflix shows that actually gets renewed over and over and over again. And I bet part of the reason is because it's cheap to make. It is, and it's pretty fun and kind of low stakes, but still exciting. It's one of those shows that you could just like kind of jump in and you might not get everything that's happened because the plot's basically a soap opera, but they do so much indicating of who the bad guy is and who the good guy is that you could just watch it. It's fun. It's light. It's great. Honestly, I have had it on my list. I've had it on my list for a long time. And this is the encouragement I need to find out which Netflix tier I have. And can I see Cobra Kai in Ultra HD or just Full HD? Or am I basic? I will find out and report back, I promise. Thanks for keeping us informed. I do think, though, the fact that we're getting these Nielsen ratings from Netflix brings up something very uh, exciting about what we were discussing with our ad tiers, that because this advertising is coming to Netflix, we're going to have new Nielsen numbers. And I'm very excited about having Nielsen reporting for streaming shows. It's been, you know, hard to get actual hard data on how much people are watching. This could be huge for creators. Yeah, that, I'm so glad you brought that up because the biggest news to me from the entire Netflix ad tier announcement, most of it is stuff we already knew or assumed, but the big news is that in order to make the advertisers happy to give them a bunch of money, Netflix has agreed to let Nielsen get real metrics from the ad tier. They are not going to give Nielsen the fire hose of all the ad-free subscriptions and who and what those people are viewing. No, of course not. But it is earth-shattering in the streaming industry for a company as huge as Netflix, as, as important to the industry as Netflix, to finally cave and say, okay, Nielsen, you can tell the advertisers literally how many people watched something instead of us going, well, it was the top viewed in the demographic of smart cat-related lady crimes. Ooh, I do want to watch those I, that's shows. A, that sounds like a really good vertical, right, in, in Netflix. I would stop on mm. that and start scrolling through every title. Everyone. That's how they're going to get it. That's how they're going to beat Disney+. Plus. Okay, but that is the world of Netflix. It will soon be full of ads if you are basic enough to go there. But maybe you won't be. Maybe you'll be off in another streaming service. And of course, we have so many to talk about. So let's do some quick follow-up, starting with... The news that made me smile more than any news has ever made me smile. We have talked already about Community, the movie, the long-fabled Community movie, seems to be a green light at Peacock, and we talked last episode about all the cast that had signed on, but there were some missing names, and I am so happy to read this quote from uh, Community creator Dan Harmon, which says, quote, I think that Donald is coming, based on word of mouth. 
We might have Troy and Abed back together. Troy and Abed reunited. I couldn't be more excited. I'm so excited. I just, I, I want it to be official so I can really breathe a sigh of relief. And there are three words I am dying to hear, which are Yvette Nicole Brown. Yes. And so uh, to this point, there's a little speculation from the AV Club and Variety, but this came from an interview Dan Harmon did around Comic-Con with the folks at Variety, and they got some really interesting thoughts from him about the process. Good read if you're a community fan. But one key detail here is, uh, according to Harmon, the reason that names like Donald Glover and Yvette Nicole Brown were not part of the announcement is because deals have not been finalized, and that they reached a point where they had enough of the cast signed on to greenlight the deal with Peacock. And now they're continuing the negotiations with unnamed other parties. I think it is adorable that he described his knowledge of uh, Donald Glover's involvement through word of mouth. I'm like, who who else is talking about this around you? And don't they don't you have his number still? Maybe you don't. I really don't know because there is one other name we should mention here, uh, which is Chevy Chase. Because Chevy Chase did not leave that show on good terms with Dan Harmon. And in fact, if you're a spoiler for a sitcom that has ended multiple times by now, they killed him off at a certain point because <laughs> he was never going to come back on that set when Dan Harmon was there. Uh, and he, Dan Harmon did get asked at Comic-Con, actually, in front of a panel about the odds of Chevy Chase coming back. And he said, I don't even know if it's legal for him to come back. That may be out of my hands. Great Dan Harmon vibe there. Love it. Absolutely. It's nice to know that he's still got that spark. Uh, And I will say I don't want him to return as Clark. (laughs) I think the show would be better off if he did not. And um, that's all I need. Yes, I like that you uh, just, you know, subconsciously named him after his vacation movies character. Oh, is that not? Wait, what's his name in the show? Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think Clark Griswold has a home in the community world. No, Clark Griswold does not have a home in the community extended universe. And in fact, I might say that that might have been the culture clash of having Chevy Chase there to begin with. I did learn from a deep rabbit hole on these links that Chevy Chase was not Dan Harmon's original choice. He wanted somebody like Fred Willard in that role. And I, I swooned. I swooned in my chair when I read that. Okay, his name was Pierce, and Pierce and Clark are the same name. That's true. With no offense to Superman. Scientifically true. Thank you. Uh, Well, that's the news from Community, but that's not the only comedy news roiling the world. We do have an update on Trevor Noah's last day at The Daily Show. Uh, It's coming up soon. December 8th, Paramount has announced, will be the, the end of the Trevor Noah era. Still no news on who will be replacing him. Nope. But you can tune in to The Daily Show with To Be Announced on January 17th, 2023, when Paramount vows they will have figured this out. Okay. A a few months to get somebody great. Uh, No biggie. I'm keeping an open mind. Right. uh, Me too. Truly. But that's not the only news about Paramount. And I want to bring this... Back in to a name we spoke about when we were talking about what's going on at Comedy Central and The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This is a man who is in charge of a a small part of Paramount called the MTV Entertainment Group, which is like all the cable channels that you know and care about. So, for example, Comedy Central. That man is named Chris McCarthy. And if you did not listen to our discussion of The Hollywood Reporter's extremely hot goss-filled takedown of Chris McCarthy's uh, Paramount days... Well, you can just go back in your podcast feed. That's the last episode. Uh, What I want to touch on here is another story that came out about Showtime. And Showtime is part of the larger Paramount family. And Showtime, as we mentioned, again, last episode, talking about shows that have been renewed or canceled, Showtime just canceled uh, Flatbush Misdemeanors, which was one of their last remaining 30-minute comedies, which we didn't really take a moment to address the fact that uh, Showtime, they really came up with edgy 30-minute comedies. In Mm -hmm. the the period that HBO was becoming the home for edgy, dark uh, prestige dramas was the same period that Showtime found a ton of success with shows like Weeds and the the early seasons of Shameless. Remember when Shameless was new? We were children. I do. 
Uh, Californication, do you remember? Yes, <laughs> yes. This this was Showtime's brand. And now it's just, oh, right, they had that show. It's gone, huh? And still no news about whether they're going to renew one of their only remaining comedies, which is our beloved I Love That For You. Uh, so, you know, it is a big deal that Showtime seemingly doesn't care about its comedy slate anymore. Never mind the, the bigger questions about, you know, they're pretty niche and uh, as a standalone streaming service, they're not that popular. Paramount Plus is trying to be the destination streaming service for Paramount content. And you can already add Showtime for like a buck if you subscribe to Paramount Plus. So they are so close to going hard bundle here. They're still a soft bundle, soft bundle, separate, but only a buck more to add Showtime really says, we don't see this as separate. We see this as something you should probably just have anyway. And that brings us to this piece of news. Showtime's uh, current chief, David Nevins, is stepping down at the end of the year, and he's been in charge of Showtime for six years now. Uh, so fully predates the remerger of CBS and Viacom into the Paramount behemoth. Predates CBS All Access, predates Paramount Plus, predates all of that. So this this guy is old school Showtime in a lot of ways. He's leaving, and they are replacing him with, drumroll please, MTV Entertainment CEO Chris McCarthy. Everyone's favorite TV mogul who likes to watch uh CNN? CNN. Not a particular show on CNN. Probably likes to have it on mute in the background. Mm-hmm. That's Chris Probably. McCarthy. In defense of Chris McCarthy, I've been thinking about this a lot since last week. We talked about how David Zaslav actually at Warner Brothers Discovery went around and did the sort of glad handling with the talent that you expect a new CEO to do. And Chris McCarthy didn't do that. At the same time, David Zaslav is still making some major cuts and really, you know, being pretty ruthless in his business decisions, it seems. And it seems that Chris McCarthy is doing the same thing. Is there something to be said for someone who's like, I'm not going to pretend that this is going to be easy for you? It's not Chris McCarthy's fault that Comedy Central is really in the position that it's in. Linear cable network is just failing across the board. You know, everyone's moving to streaming. Not everyone, but many, many people are moving to streaming. Yeah, I think the the thing that's missing in that hypothetical is Chris McCarthy telling anyone that that's what he's doing. You know, mm -hmm. I, a lot of what we talked about in that Hollywood Reporter piece, it, you could really boil down the actual theme of the piece to we don't understand the direction and we're afraid we don't like the direction or that he doesn't know what he's doing because he hasn't communicated why he's letting talent go, why he's reversing renewals, not just canceling shows, but reversing renewals of shows. And it's not like Drunk History is an expensive show. Maybe, it, I don't know, maybe the reenactments are so accurate that it costs a fortune to make, like Game of Thrones. But just, you know, it, it, we were left at the end of a very thorough piece, it, it, seemingly, wondering, wh why is he doing this? You can make assumptions, you can make guesses based on it, but none of it was none of it was clearly communicated to the people who were angry enough to talk to The Hollywood Reporter about it. That's fair. I just think that communicating that... <laughs> That's hard. Um, wouldn't make people happier, necessarily, when the news is that dire. No. But I do think Zaslav is a good comparison here. While people are definitely unhappy with a lot of his choices, they did do a pretty good job of saying, we're getting out of uh, family, and we're getting out of kids' mm -hmm. animation. They, they pretty much said it exactly verbatim. We just are getting out of those. And so then when we canceled your children's animation program, you don't go, what? Why? You go, screw you, man. But you did say you were not interested in this. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe what Chris McCarthy needs is some, some help with his uh, corporate communication right? skills. Corporate communication skills. Always so important. Uh, do you know where they've been communicating a lot lately? And we've talked about this, so I thought we would revisit it briefly. Disney Plus 
And in particular, the Star Wars shows. We reviewed the premiere of Andor a few weeks ago, uh, the current Disney Plus Star Wars series. And uh, one thing I noted is that they made a big deal out of telling us the roadmap for Andor ahead of time. They said it's going to be two seasons. Each season's going to have this many episodes. The first season's going to cover a, a year. And then the second season, they're going to do a few episodes, time jump, a few episodes, time jump, a few episodes, time jump. And it's going to end with us being set up for Rogue One because the whole series is a prequel to Rogue One and that's it. That's the plan. And here are the writers and here are the directors and look we've planned it all. It really it really was such a sea change I feel like from some of the ways that they've unveiled the other uh, Star Wars shows in particular. They really wanted to say like look we thought this all through come for this ride with us. And now we are about halfway through season one of that ride, so no big spoilers here. We don't want to ruin anything for anyone still catching up on, on Andor, but uh, Diane and I are caught up through episode six, and as we mentioned, again, just in this original review, so no no new spoilering here, the first three episodes, which dropped at once, had one writer, one director. Second three episodes, which came out weekly, one writer, one director, and now we're going to move on to another set of writer-directors for the rest of the season. And so it felt like a good place just to pause and, and one, how are you feeling about Andor, Diane? But two, how are you liking this structure? Because it really feels like a structure. Each of the three episode chunks so far have felt like their own act of a larger story. Very, very complete, actually. Like each one could sort of be its own little Rogue One spinoff movie. I do agree with that, though. The three episodes within each of the three episode chunks uh, also feel complete to me as episodes of television, which is why I'm still feeling good about this structure. I would say I'm, I'm pretty much in favor of it. And it's nice to really see uh, creative control. It feels like it's all very thoughtfully done. I was very impressed with episodes four to six, which were written by Dan Gilroy and directed by Susanna White. Oh my gosh, give Susanna White a major movie franchise now. She's so good. Episode six was just visually stunning for me. And I would say my overall takeaway of Andor so far is that knowing that Star Wars could be this good is going to make it hard for me to go back to other Star Wars content. Yes, I got to say, one of my biggest feelings now that we're, you know, six weeks or a month basically into Andor is like, wow, did I get cut a lot of slack to Obi-Wan Kenobi and Book of Boba Fett? Like, I have cut so much slack to those shows, and this is in a different class of storytelling. And I love you calling out the visuals here, because we're about to move on to She-Hulk, which has had its own crazy visual effects story. Uh, but one thing that I was really impressed by throughout all of Andor so far, but episode six is a real showstopper. Really, really good. <laughs> and it has a, some spectacular visual effects. But they aren't everywhere. A ton of it's practical, and so I think that gave them the budget and the focus to say the visual effects that we are going to get the VFX team for are going to be out of this world. They're going to be perfect. They're going to look amazing. And then everything else is going to be practical. So we're not overloading that VFX team with work on every single frame of every single scene. We're, we're really relying on something that Lucas and Disney now has done very well with the Star Wars uh, material in general in the recent years is the practical stuff is amazing. The sets are amazing. The costumes are amazing. They do such a good job of building this physical world. Uh, and, and you know, a little spe speculation on my part here, but I think that's something that the Lucas team learned after the uh, the prequel trilogy, the Phantom Menace trilogy, where, mm -hmm. they, where finally the computer graphics were good enough that you could do a lot with them, and it, people didn't love that, you know? Uh, Jar Jar Binks aside, which you can hate for a variety of reasons, there was just like an uncanny valley element of so much CGI and not of it, none of it feeling super necessary to the storytelling. And now uh, Star Wars today does so much more with practical effects. And then they have their cartoon series where they leaned into a more cartoony CGI. And I, th I think personally, they kind of figured out, oh, for the live action stuff, we want to lean into live action because that is what made the original so good. They're gritty. Agreed. 
The other thing for me about the sections that don't have the VFX that make it work so well is that the cast is just outstanding across the board, really good. And especially the sort of smaller characters are still getting like nice, juicy arcs and beautiful, nuanced performances. And for that, that for me, uh, is something that I was missing a little bit in Rogue One, that like emotional connection to the characters. And that is a film I really like. But, you know, if there was something I wanted more from it, it was, you know, real character development. And I feel like with this structure of these longer sections, three episodes in these different areas, I'm really getting that from lots of characters and I'm really enjoying it. Same. Same. We will do a full rewind review of season one of Andor when it wraps up, because hopefully we're going to still be feeling this good. But if we're not, we'll be able to tell you where it went wrong. But I don't think that's going to happen because I do feel like they, they projected confidence at the beginning and they are following through with confidence, which makes me feel like they're pretty confident. I share your optimism. With a cautious heart. <laughs> I was like, you say the words I share your optimism, but your face over the Zoom right now is not optimistic. It's terrified. Oh, boy. Should like, we talk about She-Hulk? <laughs> like, oh, is that the transition we're going to do? Rough, rough. Well, no better time than any time to talk about a VFX-filled, uh, franchise-laden, complicated Disney Plus non-Star Wars story. That's the difference. It's our rewind review of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. Yes, She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. We came to this through a very bleak transition, but I want to make I want to back up for a moment and say I had a great time with season 1 of She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, and we are going to get very into the weeds about our critiques of some of the big story twists, but uh, before we get there, I, I just want to say it's a lot of fun. I want a second season. I enjoyed every episode. I agree with you. And for the most part, I would say I enjoyed every episode slightly more than I enjoyed the previous episode, with the exception for me of maybe the finale, which I still thought was interesting and cool. It's an uneven show, but it's ambitious and it's fun to watch. Ah, that is that is great like logline. That's your nugget to take away. If you're dropping off right now because you have been scrambling to take your phone out of your pocket to pause, pause, pause because you haven't finished She-Hulk yet, still finish it. It's okay. And in fact, I agree that in general, the trajectory of the season was upward. And that makes me uh, optimistic for season two. But we are going to talk about how they chose to end the season and what that says about, I think, the overall vibe of the show. So again, this is your final spoiler warning. We're going into all nine episodes of She-Hulk Attorney at Law. And I want to start by rewinding all the way to the pilot episode, because as we mentioned in our original review of the first couple episodes of She-Hulk, the pilot we saw was originally going to be the eighth episode of the season, according to showrunner Jessica Gao. Uh, We will drop that link back in the show notes. Uh, That would have been the second-to-last episode, which I, I at the time thought it's probably a really good idea they took the giant chunk of backstory with Bruce Banner and put that at the beginning of the show instead of literally stopping the momentum of the season to go all the way back to the origin story right at the end. And I think at the end of this season, if they had kept that as episode eight, I would not be so enthusiastic about season two coming hopefully soon. They have not said anything about it, but I really think it would have been a disaster for the momentum of the season to just jump all the way back to that backstory. I agree. My fix for that would not be to move all that backstory up and put it as a pilot, which is the decision that they made, but to just cut almost that whole episode and get it down to maybe three minutes of content about what happened, a little fun banter with her and Bruce about the the like Captain America banter was fun, and just drop it into an episode about her being a She-Hulk attorney at law, which was the stuff that I enjoyed the most. 
Yeah, or honestly, another way you could have addressed this is you have that much of Bruce and, uh, I want to say Tatiana, because it's Tatiana Maslany, who I love, uh, Bruce and Jen together. Uh, you could have that much, but then you chop it up into little three-minute chunks, and there's one relevant three-minute flashback in every episode of the season. And I don't love that device personally, but that would have been another option to spread that out, because I, I agree that in hindsight, that's not a highlight of the season. It's in fact probably the most workmanlike episode of the season. It is there just to deliver a ton of exposition. It's not that funny. Most of the humor has more to do with your knowledge of the MCU and the humor of, oh, look, it's Hulk, and he has to do these things with her, and less of the organic humor that actually comes from Jen's uh, life in the show. So I agree that there probably was a better way to handle that backstory, but also in the MCU, that's probably one of the hardest tasks you're assigned. You are, I'm sure, given a list of things that need to happen, and one of them is the backstory. Right. It does make sense. You have to um, please multiple viewers, or multiple types of viewers, I should say, and you don't want to completely alienate everyone who's already a Marvel fan. Now, there are some Marvel fans who are going to be bothered anyways because of the show's content focusing on, you know, a female superhero. But uh, I think the show does a really good job of addressing them in a playful way that didn't feel preachy, but was just kind of tongue in cheek and genuinely funny. Yeah, and again, that's when then the show was being itself, was being about mm-hmm. what it is about. And and so, yes, I found the way that it addressed its own trolls, preemptively addressed its own trolls, was really savvy and smart and some of the best content story-wise that the show gave us. It really drove the arc of the whole season until the end when it kind of decided to take the wheels off the car retroactively. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, Before we actually tear apart the finale, because I feel like that's the direction we're going, uh, I want to actually talk about, like, the meat of the season. Like, we we reviewed the very beginning, so we saw the setup. She gets her job at uh, the law firm as their first superhuman lawyer. We get the introduction of the Abomination, uh, who becomes our our season-long not arc because his story is not the A story, but he is kind of like the season-long bookends. He's there Mm -hmm. repeatedly through the season. He's a nice through line that really anchors the show in an interesting way because he is very MCU, but he's not obvious like having literally, you know, Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk there. That's low-hanging MCU fruit versus what about a deep cut? Let's do a deep cut. Get that abomination back. We didn't even have the same actor playing the Hulk back then. Doesn't matter. I found that to be more organic because his journey made sense. That he had to deal with reconciling the two halves of himself and has come to seemingly a very zen place about it. And that is Jen's struggle through the season. That felt really uh, substantial. And you might argue the same thing is true about Bruce Banner, but it, it he's an Avenger. It doesn't read the same. He's there for fan service. I completely agree. And there are a few people who we see who we see a lot in the Marvel Cinematic Universe of late, like uh, Wong, who has been in a bunch of the movies lately. Uh, And I liked his performance in it. And I liked the times that he popped up. But it was refreshing to have other superheroes who I didn't know at all pop in and some of them not so super just people with superpowers, superhumans, you know, it really expanded the idea of what Marvel is beyond just the Avengers. And that part was fun for me. Yeah. One thing I've liked consistently about Hawkeye, uh, She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, is these writers are beginning to really explore what does it mean for the universe where the Marvel Cinematic Universe takes place? What does it mean to live in a universe that isn't just populated with superheroes? It is, like, lousy with superheroes. You you walk to the store and you trip over a superhero at this point in the world of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so it was one of my favorite episodes of uh, the season of She-Hulk was the one with the guy who who is just a rich kid who's decided to be a a super frog 
He has no superpowers, <laughs> but he has a lot of money, so he hires uh, the super suit maker, who is another fantastic you know, uh, bit character that pops up through the season, uh, to make him a frog suit with, like, jetpack feet. And that goes as poorly as you would imagine. And he has a lair that has a giant neon sign out front that says, The Lily Pad. Everything about that was hilarious and also felt like a really just interesting window into, yeah, if we lived in a world full of superheroes and, you know, costume designers who make super suits for people, you would have a ton of rich people who want to be the next Tony Stark. Yeah, that we already have them in the real <laughs> world. They're just not as funny as they are on this show. So I like that a lot. Yeah, that, that episode was really fun. I also loved um, the... Dave Pasquese character who had um, uh, married all these different people and then they they were like jointly suing him for emotional damage. Uh, that was very funny too. I liked the, the cases a lot. I, I think they were my favorite part of the show were the parts of it that were uh, the, the like legal drama, not drama, because it's that, comedy. The Ally McBeal side of the show, which was, you know, yeah. yeah, she's a lawyer, but we don't really want to watch a lot of courtroom scenes. It's more about the wacky clients. No, I wanted more courtroom scenes, I will say. I, I could have used some courtroom scenes. Personally, I, I love a good courtroom scene, but I'm not surprised we did not get more of them. Because as we mentioned in our, our first review, uh, one of the things Jessica Gao said she learned from their writer's room uh, on this show is that none of their writers like to write those scenes or are very good at them. And so there just aren't a lot of them, which I think was the smart move. If you realize that your writer's room is not a law and order writer's room, and no one in this writer's room will ever be able to hack it at the, you know, Sam Waters in scenes on Law and Order, just just admit that and go. Well, then, what can we write in the courtroom side of the show? And the answer was the clients who were all delightful and the cases were interesting. We, I, I again, I love a good courtroom scene, but I was surprised to say at the end of the season, I didn't, I wasn't craving more scenes of Jen in court as much as I was craving more of her workplace life with her really fun colleagues and the wacky clients they have to deal with. I mean, criminally underutilized supporting cast that did get some great uh, opportunities to shine in the finale. But when you when you have Renee Elise Goldsberry and she's in like, I don't know, a collective 10 minutes of the series, I'm like, no, you have a national treasure here. And every scene she has with Jen, I, they are like collectively eating the scenery together. It's amazing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that the... Her colleagues are my favorite characters on the show. Pug, Nikki, they are so fun and funny, and I like that they had a little more to do in the finale. Me too. I hope that if they're, you know, with upcoming episodes, I would love it if they got more development and more to do. It's not to say I did not enjoy some of the MCU cameos. In particular, bringing in Daredevil was a ton of fun. It really elevated that episode. It felt thematically appropriate because he's a lawyer, she's a lawyer. It gave them uh, some romance. And at a point in the season where Jen was really down and I, and I was feeling really icky about how they had, and icky on purpose, they had taken Jen, opening herself up, trying to find love. And, and as you do on a TV show, they turned that into, well, actually, he was scamming you to steal your blood. And so she's feeling really down. And then when they find an organic way to bring in not just a new love interest, but a new love interest who's an in-universe superhero character that makes perfect sense to appear on this show, ha, that's really good. Yeah, they had really great chemistry together, too. Um, I really enjoyed their scenes together. And I think one of the things that that highlights is a theme of the show, of which I would call like sort of light approachable feminism in the sense that it wasn't like going to go into any weeds of intersectionality, nor do I want Marvel to do that necessarily. I don't trust them with that material. Um, but, you know, like there is this sense of like she's balancing work and this like media attention now and uh, like, can she have it all? It was entertaining, and I think they handled that quite well. Yeah, I, I agree. And and they were able to pack a lot of different versions of that story into one relationship that we really just see for one episode. Because he's uh, representing 
uh, the he's he's the opposite lawyer. He's the I don't know if she's the defense or the prosecution on that case. I think that she's the prosecution because they are or she's the plaintiff because they're suing um, the the uh, that's right. The costume designer. That's right. Who gets kidnapped. Oh, boy. So much happens. So much happens. Okay, but we should talk about the big bad of the season, and that will get us to the finale. But but before we get to the finale, I, at what point in the season did you suspect that John Bass was obviously the villain we were all waiting for? Uh, I knew that well, he, he never seemed good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but there's a difference. Here's, here's my way I think of it. Yes, he never seemed like a good guy. I never thought, ooh, you got to get him, you got to get that John Bass character together with Jen. They are, they are meant to be. But when he kept popping up, when he popped up in his, like, third episode, I'm like, mm-hmm. hmm, he's recurring an awful lot for bad boyfriend material character. You know what I mean? I do. The only thing, there were so many, like, kind of sleazy guys. Almost every guy in this series, except for Daredevil and Pug, for me, could have been revealed as a big bad. But you're right. By the fact that he was there the most at a certain point, it was like, huh, they've got something up their sleeve. Mm -hmm. And I love that they chose John Best because he's so funny and charming. I mean, that was just a blast. Yeah, I, I, you know, I maybe part of me was once he showed up in like three episodes, I was hoping it would be John Bass because I, I want to see him have a delicious villainous turn. Yes, I agree. Though I thought that his ultimate turn was a little rushed and could have been more delicious. Yes, everything about the finale could have been more delicious than it was, but but we're not quite there yet. We're so close. <laughs> we're so close. Uh, I did want to ask you, in the finale, there is a moment where it seems like Nikki might be the big bad. Did you have 10 seconds, not even 10 seconds, it was probably five seconds, where Nikki is sending this video of Jen dancing in her dorm room to the, the evil, you know, uh, incels online? I thought it might happen. At the same time, I didn't think that these creators would do that. I didn't think that they would make it her best friend, who is a woman, is going to be really the the source behind all of this misogynistic uh, bad will. If they had done that, I would have been really mad, though I also would have been surprised. Like, it would be a twist, but it wouldn't really line up with everything we've seen from Nikki so far. So I'm really glad that they didn't go that way. Also, because I love their scenes together and I want them to keep playing off each other. So, oh, I'm so glad they didn't do that. Same, same. I felt in that moment like somebody in the writer's room pitched it as a fake out. Somebody in the writer's room went, oh, wouldn't it really get people if it seemed like Nikki had betrayed her? And they, they all went, oh, that would be a twist. That'd be a twist. Obviously, she never would. She never would. But like, oh, how do you think we could like get people to like believe that twist for a minute? And and then they probably talked it down to we could get people to believe that twist for exactly two seconds before they think about the rest of the show they've already seen and go, this show wouldn't do that. And that is exactly how long they play the twist for they play it for two seconds before she goes i'm sorry uh jen i had to i'm so clever and you're like oh yeah so she's on jen's side of course she's on jen's side they the somebody was like we can't even let that linger in the air for more than two seconds because if people think we're willing to do that kind of schlocky uh, anti-feminist twist we really aren't earning this bonkers ending we're trying to earn and i don't know if they really earned their bonkers ending but i respect them for trying completely agree does that mean we have to talk about the bonkers ending let's do it i don't know that they didn't earn it either it was like almost there it was just a little bit rushed for me so should we try and recap what happens in the in the finale it's a lot it's right a, in it's a, row. a lot and i think maybe part, part of the strange feeling of it is it it is hinged on something that happens at the end of episode eight at the end of episode eight she is at the female lawyer of the year awards and she is getting her female lawyer of the year award with seemingly all the other female lawyers and uh that is when the evil forces launch their um, kind of embarrassing attack on her they're trying to out her as phony essentially as some Somebody not worthy of your adoration, not worthy of superhuman powers. And she finally has like a Hulk smash moment where she loses her cool and loses control of her 
powers, so to speak, and smashes the big screen. And then she gets arrested by the, you know, superhuman police, the Department of Damage Control or whatever they call it. It's essentially revenge porn. I mean, they don't show anything that's too adult in it but um you know that the person she'd met at the wedding who later ghosted her has uploaded footage of her and shared it on intelligentsia um which i can never remember the name of the evil website because intelligentsia is also like the coffee brand they sell at whole foods i'm like no but that's yeah i like that coffee that can't be the evil people I know, because the evil people aren't particularly smart. No, they're not. But that's why the name is funny. I give them that credit, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, okay, so yes, I want to pause on that for a second, because not just did that uh, character ghost Jen after uh, hooking up with her after the, the wedding, and not just hooking up with her after the wedding, they dated for several dates. The whole point mm-hmm. was Jen was trying to, like, find a real connection. And then, you know, finally when they hook up and she has this great night with him— he actually is recording her, stealing her blood. He's evil, intelligentsia bro, right? He also ghosts the story, and we never see that actor again, which I found really troubling or weird in the finale. I'm not sure if it's troubling or just disappointing, but there was zero closure on that really, really big betrayal. Agreed. Yeah, I would have loved to see uh, Trevor Salter, who played Josh, come back just for, you know, uh, even a, a brief part as one of the many intelligentsia bros in we crowd. see gather. A, or right. a perp walk later. You don't even have to have her interact with him. You don't even have to have him if it's a scheduling issue and you could not get the actor again. You do need to have her say something acknowledging that this brought some closure or no closure to her. I just, that was such a key pivotal moment in the season, such a character moment for her, so crucial to the story they're trying to tell. And then they dropped it. Agreed. And part of the reason that what happened was so invasive is not just that it was shared. And then we find out later that John Bass's character has paid for that to happen. And it's like, oh, but it was really my fault. But really, the person who slept with her and did that is the one is the greatest betrayal, not the person you went on some dates with who then, you know, I mean, obviously, that is also a betrayal. But that character, we we do need some closure on. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And I think this speaks to the vibe both of us had, which is just episode nine, nine of nine, felt like it needed to be two episodes. It felt like Mm -hmm. this show was aiming for a 10 episode order and that they crammed the last two episodes into one. Uh, And that I have no way of knowing if there was something to do with episode orders or anything like that. Not saying that that's a fact. I am just saying that's the vibe of the finale, where they didn't even have enough time in that episode to have everything happen in that episode. So the instigating incident is a cliffhanger from the previous episode, which also kind of messes with the momentum, in my opinion. Uh, And then... All of these events happen in episode nine so quickly that we don't get closure on some of them. And some things happen so fast. I'm I'm piecing together at the end of the episode. So which things did they undo by breaking the fourth wall? And which things did actually happen and continue to be true in the universe? And it's not because breaking the fourth wall is too confusing. Oh, no, don't ever do it. That's not that's not it. What is it is, well, breaking the fourth wall introduces a lot of complicated story questions sometimes, and you have to be sure that you answer the important ones or people will get confused. And I was honestly confused at the end of the big fourth wall breaking twist. And then I kind of pieced together what I needed to know and the episode wrapped up and, and I went, oh, that was it? Not a great note to end on is the problem. Agreed. Though I did like the fourth wall break itself I, and I the sequence too. of it. I really liked it. Again, that is not it is not a critique of the fourth wall break as a device mm-hmm. or as a choice that this show made. Because as we mentioned before in the first uh, She-Hulk episode, uh, the fourth wall breaking is from the comics. It is not something where Jessica Gao just loves meta and wanted to go totally fourth wall wacky. This is absolutely from a beloved section of the She-Hulk uh, Marvel comic history. And so they were doing 
doing something that's very on-brand for the character. And they were doing it in a way that felt really on-brand for kind of where the MCU is right now, where it is so self-referential and is so complex and is so orchestrated. And so to make the, the climax address that also felt right. It felt like, yes, these are actually on-brand for the show. It's how they rushed everything that happened after the fourth wall broke that really made it tough. It really just made it feel like they did not stick the landing. I completely agree. And I do think that might have been a nice spot to bring back Jen doing some lawyering. It doesn't have to necessarily be in a courtroom if they're uncomfortable with that. But like, you know, even if she's just um, after everything has been resolved and she's restored her reputation and her law license uh if if she you know we can see that she makes a decision to instead of use brute force to get her revenge she's going to use the law then let us see her do it let us see some creative legal maneuvering it could be a two-minute scene and i think it would really have helped right I also think they maybe tried to cram more in than was necessary, especially if Mm. there may be a second season, which seems very possible. It has not been confirmed one way or another, but this is one where, like Loki, it is ended in a place where there's no immediate movie that that seems obvious, not like Ms. Marvel, which literally ends with, like, now you'll see the movie. I'm like, oh, right. This, This one ends with, she's back to being a lawyer. In fact, she's kind of reset to a new status quo that's even more more status quo than the show has been all season, that sure sounds like the setup for a second season of the show. That said, I don't think we needed to restore that status quo in the finale, because the whole point they make in Breaking the Fourth Wall is that not every Marvel property, not every Marvel series on Disney Plus, needs to have its story hijacked by this cross-promotional, synergistic action climax that we know audiences love because we got the data that supports it. The algorithms say they want to see all the characters swoop in at this moment. And why is Jamil Jamil blowing through the wall? Doesn't matter, because this is where we bring everyone together. And that, that critique, that saying, we don't need to do that, that was really smart and and really focused on this is the moment where i loved the fourth wall breaking in particular she is with kevin who's a robot not kevin feige but haha a robot and she's saying my stakes of losing everything in my life and trying to just have a life that's stakes enough and and that was so true and so good to see in a marvel show and then they bring her back and she's still lost everything in her life, even as they retcon some of the events that happened in the climax. They get rid of John Bass uh, turning into a Hulk because that plot is dumb and has been done many times, which, again, funny that they acknowledge that. But they still keep that she lost her job and that she maybe can't turn back into a Hulk because the court says she's not supposed to until they clear her name. And they could have left us there. And then, in the season premiere of season two, she solves it all in court, and she gets her good name back, and she's back at work, and now we set up the status quo of season two. That that would have worked, and would have given them breathing room at the end of season one to say, maybe she doesn't know what her life is going to be like next, and these are the stakes, and this is where it landed for her, and maybe it's not a haha funny moment at the end, but it's more of a maudlin funny moment of, well, I got some of what I wanted— And I still don't have everything I wanted to begin with. Which actually, I think for the tone of this show would be a great place to land. That's what I wanted Mm. inside. And you still could have had the warm emotional beats of her having dinner with Daredevil and her family, of Hulk returning with Hulk's son, which is a big MCU twist. You still could have had all of that. But what got me was suddenly she's walking back to court and she's She-Hulk going to court again. And they're like, who are you wearing? And I'm like, yeah, that's funny, but... But how did we get there in the last 30 seconds after all of this other stuff we just landed on? You just skipped several steps and you just should have moved that to the beginning of the next season. Would have been the first five minutes of the first episode of the next season. Would have been funny. Would have brought us back up to speed. Would have been great. Don't know why you had to cram it into this already overstuffed, complicated finale. So overstuffed and complicated. You brought this up, so I want to 
see if you understand it because I'm going to be honest and say that I do not. Why did Titania return Jamila Jamil's character? What was that moment? What was she? What what did it I, accomplish? I, I don't understand. I, I so this is again where I was confused after the we returned from the fourth wall because the whole point is all these people show up at Emil Blonsky's retreat and Emil Blonsky is the abomination giving them a really funny moment giving them like this motivational TED talk where I actually do believe that Emil Blonsky has no idea who these people are and he must think this is like a company retreat from eBay and they're all here to like you know improve their their team building you know so that th- that part is funny but then the whole you know, the whole premise of everything has to come together and all the characters have to interact in the big Marvel set piece finale. That's the joke that they're setting up there. And so Blonsky's there, Nikki's there, Pug's there. Uh, Jen shows up there because she goes to Blonsky's retreat looking for Blonsky. So of course Titania's going to show up there because John Bass is also there because the Hulk is going to show up there. And that's when she stops things and we really do break our fourth wall because she's like, well, why is the Hulk showing up? That makes no sense right now. And so she goes into the Disney Plus menus and she finds the the Marvel uh, documentary series so that she can go to the Disney lot. I thought all of that very cute, very funny, very well thought out. She goes to the actual She-Hulk writer's room. She actually interacts with the writer, Jessica Gao. Jessica Gao plays uh, writer Jessica as it was named in the closed captioning. And I do want to pause here and say, as much as we both love closed captioning, the closed captioning ruined the twist that Kevin was actually a robot. Because the whole gimmick in that scene is she breaks into the real world and she's looking for the person responsible for her story arc. And the writers in the writer's room say, oh, well, no, Kevin says it has to be this way. Kevin says this is how it has to go. And she's like, well, I want to talk to Kevin. And they go, nobody talks to Kevin. And of course, you're supposed to think they're talking about Kevin Feige, who is the head of Marvel for Disney Plus and for all of Disney. And instead, it's K-E-V-I-N, an AI robot that, that decides everything based on algorithms. And that is a funny reveal, and it's, it's I, again, my, my issue is not that they broke the fourth wall like that. My, my real big issue in this moment is they put K-E-V-I-N, all caps with periods like it was an acronym, in all of the closed captioning dialogue whenever someone said, oh, Kevin decides that. And as soon as I saw that, I went, well, the twist is Kevin's a robot. Mm-hmm. Ruined that uh. that twist for me. I don't know about for you. Then they get to Kevin. Then they get to Kevin. And she pleads her case to Kevin. And she's in this world now. And she says, We're, let me give you my closing argument, which I thought was a very good throwback callback to the courtroom side of the show. And she gives this good closing argument that says it should be about my stakes and we should get rid of the things that aren't necessary to my story. And so they erase Hulk from the scene. They erase John Bass having superpowers and they make him regular John Bass again. And I thought they erased Titania because that didn't make any sense. But then we drop back into the real world. But then we drop back into the real world where the cops are rounding everyone up and and doing the perp walks. And Titania's there live streaming it. And maybe we're supposed to think she came after she heard that there was something happening because she's an influencer. And so she would want to be involved and she would want to be live streaming like she's a part of it. But that's not clear. It seems like she was just still there already. In which case, my question remains, what was she doing there? So that's where I I get to. They just did not tie up what did happen versus what didn't happen. What is Marvel excess in a set piece that we don't need for Jen's story? And what do we need for Jen's story? And I feel like they did not land on the right balance there. I agree. And I just think overall... Titania was not used especially well, and you could have done a lot more with that villain arc. Like, I kind of thought at the beginning of the show that she was going to be the big bad for the series, and then they shifted it over to Blonsky, and, you know, that was also pretty good, but then Titania reappears a few times, but it never amounts to all that much. Yeah, that that Titania to me falls in the same category as her co-workers who are criminally underutilized characters mm-hmm. who are not just great actors, but well-thought-out, well-written characters. All those characters are good and interesting, and I want to see more of them. And Titania included. The, I actually am glad she did not turn out to be the big bad, because I had the same thought in the pilot. Like, oh, is the big bad just going to be like another hulky lady? That's a little cheap. 
And so, so much more interesting to not have it be two hulky ladies versus each other for the whole season. But I did want to see more of who is Titania in the world, because the whole point is she's this kind of uh, in-it-for-herself disruptive influencer character who is not a villain, but does get in your way and does become your personal villain in some situations, like when she trademarks She-Hulk. Really good plot for her, really good story. They just, I, they didn't have enough episodes, they didn't have enough runtime to balance that many strong secondary characters. And so, like a lot of her co-workers, she just kind of gets lost in the shuffle mid-season. Yeah, I think you're right. She might not have been the most interesting big bad, but I think she could have been more effective as a foil. Mm. Uh, and, and the same thing to me, the abomination is basically a big hulky dude, just like a mean hulky dude instead of a good hulky lady. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. It's not like the most interesting character in the world, but the performance was good. So I liked it. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, he's also not really the villain. Because like like I said, yeah. he's not there because he loves intelligentsia. He's selling his, um, you know, speech giving services. He's on the convention circuit. And at the end, he does go back to jail for turning into the abomination. And our nice post credit scene is Wong coming in and breaking him out again. Because Wong is the like Easter egg through line of this series. Of this series... It seems a phase four of, of the, MCU. the MCU. Well, it is. We are big into multiverses right now, so you gotta have the guy with all the windows to the multiverse. And Benedict Cumberbatch is busy. Uh, I like this guy better. I anyway. like Wong better. Wong Wong deserves to show up in more things anyway, so glad to have him. And glad to have you, dear listener, through this journey, through our very, I think, uh, complicated thoughts about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, because it was a complicated season. I agree that it was uneven, but ultimately very rewarding and, and on the whole, a lot of fun. I think on the whole, the cast, the writing, and the concept came together in what what is really a difficult balance, especially when you add the production elements like the VFX crunch at Disney, which they do make a really great call out to in the finale. And it's one of those things where I wonder, when did they write the scene with Kevin in the finale? Did they write the scene with Kevin after they were told, you need to cut half the She-Hulk scenes from the season because we don't have the VFX uh, team to do it? Because... that those are things that, you know, maybe not half the scenes, but she's acknowledged, Jessica Gao's acknowledged, they had to cut a lot of She-Hulk or turn a lot of She-Hulk scenes into Gen scenes because the VFX was so complicated and expensive, and the team had to move on to Wakanda forever. They don't literally say they had to move on to Wakanda forever in the show, but, but Kevin does say they had to move on to the next project, which is Wakanda forever. Which, you know, I, I want the VFX in that to be good, so... right. Right. So I get it. Uh, but but again, to bring it back to say, with all those complicated things, those production issues, the VFX issues, the story moving around as they rearranged things, I, I, I think they were wildly successful at something really difficult. And I, I am really hopeful that Disney sees that and goes, we should do a whole second season of this. Not just take, you know, She-Hulk and pop her into another show or something, but really like, let's invest in this because these writers cracked a really hard uh, kind of conundrum in making this show even work at all. And now that they're there, I really want to see them work with it. I completely agree. And I would say if you haven't watched yet, don't let the pilot turn you off. Give it at least two episodes. Don't, yeah, it, it, it's a fun ride. Oh, and yeah. if they don't end up using her in a season two, I hope that someone will give Ginger Gonzaga her own, like, Murder She Wrote show. <laughs> yes, yes, it's time. Reboot Murder She Wrote with Ginger Gonzaga. I am sold. She's so great. She's really charming. Uh, well, listeners, if you love that idea for the new Murder She Wrote, email us. <laughs> or if you have your own pitch, who should be the new Murder She Wrote? Because rest in peace, it's time. Email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. That's enough for our In Memoriam segment of the week. We will be back in your feeds next week with more TV and streaming. So until then, you know what you need to do, Diane? Keep streaming. Troy and Abed reunited.